Well, hello, church family. It's good to be with you again. Um, if it's okay, I'd like to start uh, just this morning with giving thanks for a few things. One in particular is Melissa and I wanted to be sure and thank you all for the cards and the way that you've welcomed us and the love that you've shown us. Uh, last week, we went home and sat down and we opened cards and, and we would read a card from somebody here and then sometimes we would go on the app and we would look up to see what you look like that you sent this to us so that we could recognize your face and your name with a... Uh, with the sweet card that you sent us, but we want you to know uh, we were overwhelmed uh, with the love and the outpouring and the generosity, and we're very thankful for that. Uh, the second thing I wanted to mention that I didn't get a chance to mention last week, uh, I, I'm thankful for, um, for Stephen Johnson. What a blessing to have somebody like Stephen here at this church uh, to step in for a while. I don't know if you know uh, what a unique blessing it is to have somebody with that sort of love of the scripture, with that sort of knowledge of God's word, and not only that, but to have him here and to have him love this church the way that he did, churches usually don't get to have somebody like that step in and be there for them. And so I'm very grateful for him and, uh, and for what he has done here. So if we can, let's stop for just a minute uh, before we begin this uh, lesson and let's pray. Let's pray. Holy God, we do thank you. We've got so much to be grateful for. Lord, I'm grateful for this church. I'm th grateful for the way that they love each other. I'm grateful for the way that they love you. And Lord, we ask that uh, today as we continue to study in the word, Lord, that you would uh, pierce our hearts with how much we are loved by our Heavenly Father, with the grace that's been shown, with the mercy that's been poured out upon us, um, with the justification that we've received. And Lord, we're grateful in particular... Uh, I'm grateful for the love that's been shown to me and Melissa as we've come here. And God, we do thank you. We thank you for Stephen. We thank you for Gaina. We thank you for their love for this church. We thank you uh, that they're going to stay, that they're going to be part of this family, that they love uh, the body of Christ here in this place. Lord, most of all, we're thankful for your word and what it means. We're thankful that it's living and that the Holy Spirit translates it into our heart. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that that's what you would do, that you would... Uh, guide the words uh, that come from a uh, broken man into the hearts of people that belong to you, and your Holy Spirit would translate them into everything that we need to hear. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be spending the next several weeks in uh, John 15, uh, as you can see about the, the vine and the branches. Now, I know it's a dicey thing for a new preacher to show up at a church and last week do something having to do with water and wine, and this week having to do something with the vineyard, I would like to assure you I have no problem. <laughs> Although that is what somebody with a problem would say, is that they have no problem. But I want you to know that in particular, John 15, I think, is something we're going to be able to spend several weeks on and really get to dive deep into what this means between the vine and the branches. This has become really a blessing to me. This set of scripture in particular has been something that uh, I've been so thankful to God for. Several years ago, this one just kind of stuck in my head. And I'm sure that you have scriptures like this too, um, where, where you have this and you're reading this word and you're going, I want to know more about this. I want to dive deep into this. I want to see what this is. And this one in particular did that for me. And uh, I had been invited out around that time to a, a vineyard to, to do a blessing of the harvest. So they were harvesting the grapes, and they said, hey, would you bless us? And I was like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to say a blessing for grapes, but I can figure it out. 
And so went out and did a blessing for the harvest at a vineyard. And it made me dive even deeper. And so I got a vine dresser, a current day vine dresser. And then I got a sommelier, which I had to figure out how to say that. I'm from East Texas, and so it was really hard for me. And found out that that is not somebody from Somalia. So that's really important for me to figure that out. But a sommelier is someone who's a wine expert. This is somebody who spends their time trying to figure out how grapes go from the vine to the branch to harvest into the wine that, that people drink. And so I spent a lot of time with them, and I dove deep into the meaning that these scriptures have to learn about what it means to talk about vine and branches and pruning and harvest and all of these different things. And it has, it has been such a blessing to me. I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you about it for the next few weeks. And I hope that it becomes something uh, that is deep and enriching for your soul as well, because that's what we will be uh, spending some time on. I'd like to tell you first, um, when I was a kid in school, in middle school and high school, uh, I didn't get the idea of symbolic language, of metaphor, simile, that sort of thing. If you're an English teacher, I'm so sorry, that, uh, but I didn't get it. I didn't like it. I didn't understand it. I know that what would happen was sometimes we'd be in the eighth grade, we'd be in the ninth grade, and they'd give you a, a novel. And you read through that thing, and it's some post-apocalyptic sort of world. And at the end of it, it would have a question, and it'd go something along the lines of, what did Jimmy's blue hat represent? And I'm like, I don't know what his hat represented. And they go, it represented the oppression of the government that was holding him down. And, wasn't, and I'm like, I, how do you know that? How do you know that Jimmy just didn't like blue? That that was his color. And that's what he enjoyed. And so that's what he wore. I didn't understand this idea of going, this represents this, and this represents that. And really what I wanted as a young man was to go, listen, if you feel oppressed, just say you feel oppressed. Don't, don't go through all of that. Why do we have to dig through that? Why do we have to find that? And so I really had a hard time with it. But then things changed. And I'll tell you the biggest thing was I met my wife. And then I started realizing that the common words that I say were not enough. Like, I told my mom and dad I loved them. And I told my sister I loved them. And when I was a little kid, I told my dog I loved them. And I used to say I loved pizza. But when I met her, I realized those words weren't going to be sufficient. There was going to have to be something more than that to explain. But I, I love you in this way. This is different the way that I love you. And so I would try to find ways to be able to say that. And then I had kids. I had two daughters. And it changed everything again. Because I had said the words, hey, I want to protect you before. Or that I would sacrifice for somebody. But when I had two little girls, it meant a whole different thing. Those words weren't enough for me to be able to actually take what was inside of me and to be able to get them into the minds and the hearts of my daughters and of my wife. It just wasn't enough. And so you start finding your way going, I love you like this and I'll protect you like this and dad will always be here for you like this. And I came to understand that in scripture, when you have our savior who walked this earth going, I love you like this and our relationship is like this and I want you to know that you mean this to me and here's who I'm going to be for you. It, it gave me great comfort to realize that I had a savior who had the same thing as to go, he's walking this earth going, I have this inside of me and I want you to know it. I want you to know the depth of my love. I want you to know what sacrifice really means. I want you to know how much you mean to me and what I will do for you, how I will change you. 
And so Jesus went around finding every way that he could to tell us and to tell his disciples at the time, this is what our relationship's going to be like. I, I heard a, a rabbi recently talk. He's a modern-day rabbi. Uh, he's, he's a follower of Jesus, but also is a Jewish rabbi. And one of the things that he said that I found really interesting was he said that when a rabbi would, would teach you something and use an example like that, he nearly always talked about what he saw and that he could point to. And, and if you look through the Gospel of John, so much John constantly uses these words. Like, for instance, here's in John. I am, Jesus says, I'm like a gate that will allow you to return back to the kingdom of your father, to your creator. I'm like a good shepherd that leads you and cares for you. I'm like the bread of life that will fill you and satisfy you. I'm like the light of the world that leads you out of darkness. I'm like living water. This is Jesus saying these things. I want you to know what I'm like. I want you to know what our relationship is like. And odds are, as a rabbi, what was happening is he was walking by and he saw a shepherd and went, I'm the good shepherd. And we know that when he met the woman at the well, when she pulled water up out of the, in the bucket, he said, but I'm living water. There were all of these things that he could point to. There was probably a gate and a pen where he goes, I'm the true gate. And there was probably a light that he saw where he goes, I'm the light of the world. And so as he would point to these things, I can feel uh, the passion of Christ trying to tell us who he is and what our relationship will be like. And in particular, when you start thinking about this scripture in John 15, this is kind of his last metaphor before he goes to the cross. And this is when he says, before I go, I want you to know, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And he uses this, there's vine, there's branch, there's fruit, there's pruning, there's harvest. There's all of these words, and I want you to know what they are. And in particular, what he's trying to do is describe a relationship. If I could get that slide up there, that picture, I want you to see something that we're going to be spending a lot of time with. I don't know if you can see that very well, but if you can look, what's going horizontal there, that's the vine. And then what intersects and begins to go up and down there, that's the branch. And of course, you can see the fruit that's on it, and you can see the multiple branches with the leaves and everything. And what's in that circle right there, where that branch and that vine connect. That is going to be our focus over the next few weeks. That is the place of relationship where I think we can learn more about our Christ and learn more about what he's going to do for us and learn more about what our relationship is to him. And so we're going to spend some time there in that spot. And with that, I think great freedom will come from us, great peace and great comfort. But today what I want to do is I want to set this up, and I want to talk to you a little bit about context, and I want you to understand a little bit about what is being said, especially just in that first verse. And for that one, just that very first verse that it says in John 15, where it starts out, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. Now, I want you to know that's just a short little phrase that begins, but you need to know there is a lot packed into that one little sentence. That is familiar language to his disciples, and that is loaded language to his disciples. And what I mean by that is there's some things in there they're going to recognize. They're going to look at that and they go, I recognize that. And then there's some other things that go, whoa, what are you talking about? Because that's very different. So there's familiar language and there's loaded language. And so we're going to talk about that. The setting is really important for this, if you're not familiar with this. This is right after the Last Supper. 
You know, we read, we read in John, and you're probably familiar with this, is the idea of the Last Supper that they gather together. And this is where Jesus takes the cup and he takes the bread. And this is after he's washed the feet of his disciples, including Judas. And, and this is after he has said the things that he's going to say, and he's actually called Judas out at that point. All of this has happened. And then 14, John 14, ends with him saying, now let us go. Come, come now, let us leave. So they leave the upper room where they were, and they're traveling to the garden. The interesting thing is there's a lot that happens between them saying he's in the upper room and now he's in the garden. And this is one of them. So it may have been something that happened while they walked, which is another way that a rabbi would teach. While you walk, you teach. So in between the upper room and in between the garden, there are some things that happened here. And if it's true that a rabbi normally talked about things that he could see and point to, there is a real possibility that what happened in this is as they left the upper room and they made their way through the city and out of the city and to the garden, that they were able to see the top front of the temple. Now, the top front of the temple was like, it was like 135 feet tall. It's 90 cubits. So it's 135 feet tall. So we're talking a tall, tall building, especially for first century. So it's very likely that no matter where you were in the city, you were able to see the front of the temple. And as they walked through, they could have seen the front of the temple. And if you're familiar with the writings of Josephus, Josephus, who was a historian who wrote a lot about what happened during the first century, Josephus said that on the front of the temple was a golden vine with grape clusters hanging from it. It was a marvel of size and artistry with clusters of grapes as tall as a man. That's what's on the front of the temple. And the reason that that's on the front of the temple is because for Jewish people in the first century, that is a very powerful metaphor of who they are. The vine, the branches, the fruit. So it's possible and likely that what happened was as Jesus led his disciples from the upper room out to the garden, that they walked by the temple and the rabbi was able to go, now I'm the true vine. And point right to it. And again, familiar language, loaded language. There's a lot to it that would, uh, that would spike their interest because they're familiar with it and would also uh, give them great concern because there's something new. Now, it's possible that happened. I don't know for certain if that happened. It may have been as they left town. They actually walked by a vineyard, and he was able to do that in point. I don't know, but I think that it's fascinating, and it's really interesting for us to think about. That's how deep a metaphor this was for first century Jews, and in particular, the disciples of Jesus, that they know this language. It's right on the front of their temple. So that's a big part of this. Let me tell you a little bit about what's familiar here. If you were a first century Jew which the disciples were. And if you're familiar with the, uh, what would be their writings, right? You had Torah and then you had the prophets. And in particular, if you're familiar with the prophets, which they would have been, the idea of him saying, I'm the true vine and starting to bring in this image of a vineyard, a vine, and a branch is something that is very familiar to them. In particular, some of their prophets used it. And one in particular was Isaiah, who was a very important prophet to the Jewish people at that time. And through Isaiah, oftentimes, the Jewish people are referred to as a vineyard, and they're talked about as a vine and as branches. Now, I will tell you, oftentimes, 
the, the metaphor that's used in Isaiah was usually when it was calling them to repentance. So they're not always positive examples. Oftentimes it's an example of a vineyard or a vine or a branch, and it's calling them to repent and calling them to do something different. For instance, in Isaiah 3, one of the things that happens is uh, the, the writer in Isaiah begins to talk about how God planted a vineyard, and this is the way he talks about it in uh, verse uh, 14. Isaiah 3, verse 14. One of the things that he says there is, the Lord enters into judgment against the elders and the leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. So as you can see, one of the things that happens is that through Isaiah, God says, I planted this vineyard. I put this on the earth. And one of the things that I wanted was for it to grow and for it to be a blessing to people. And it hasn't been. You guys haven't done what I planted you to do. And in particular, some of you have ruined the whole vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. You've been cheating people. And so this is called a repentance. In addition to that, if you go on in Isaiah 5, I'll tell you, the, the vineyard and the vine sort of metaphor was such a big deal, they made a song about it. It's called the Vineyard Song. If you look in Isaiah 5, you'll see it. Now, I'm not going to sing it for you. I don't know the tune, and it would not be good. So I don't do that. But I do want you to know that throughout Isaiah 5, one of the things that you see is there's this song about the vineyard. And if you jump into verse 3 on that one, Isaiah 5 verse 3, he explains some of what he's having a problem with again with them. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. I'll tell you before this, he talked about, I planted this vineyard, I did everything in the world that I could for it, okay? What more could have been done for my vineyard than I've done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? And then if you jump up to verse 7, he'll explain again, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Again, he just comes out and says it in the song. The vineyard is what the Lord Almighty put. It's Israel. It's the people. And in particular, Judah is the vine that he delighted in. So it's a very common thing. Like I said, when Jesus mentioned this, his disciples, their ears perked up because they knew. I know this. I know what this is about. And that's the familiar language. What they didn't realize was what's loaded in that language when he says, but I'm the true vine. And that true is a big deal. That word true matters a lot. And when Jesus said it that way, the disciples would have paid close attention to that because this word true is not just the same word that you use as the opposite of false, right? It's not like, well, this is a lie and this is true. It doesn't just mean factual. The word true is used a lot, and in particular in the Gospel of John, it's used a lot. In John 1, 9, it's written it, the true light. In 4.23, there's true worshipers. Later, it says true bread. Then it says my judgment is true, the one true God. This word is used a lot, and like I said, it means more than just not false. It means a perfect image. It means completion. It means authentic and real and lasting and eternal. So when Jesus says, I'm the true vine, he's going, I am the perfect image of what this is supposed to be. Let me tell you a little bit. I'll give you an example. So my wife grew up in a town called Santa Ana. And if you really know it, it's Santa Ana. That's the way to say it. 
And uh, when I met her and I traveled to her home for the first time when we were dating, uh, one of the things that happened was she explained to me that a few of the things that Santa Ana is famous for. And one of them is the Dairy Queen. And the other one is the mountain. I don't know if you've ever been to Santa Ana, but you know there's a mountain there. And so I was like, oh, wow. So I, I, we drove there, and then behind her house, just a little ways, is a, a mountain. Mountain. <laughs> and it's, it's a few hundred feet, maybe, to the top of it, I think, maybe. And I remember looking at that and going, wow, that's the mountain you're talking about. As a matter of fact, the high school uh, mascot was the Mountaineers. <laughs> so it had this image. This is what a mountain is. Now, a few years later, I took Melissa for the first time to Colorado. She had never been. And I took her to the Rocky Mountains. And I remember as we got there, and she looked, and she saw, and she stepped foot in it. She goes, oh, oh, that's a mountain. You're like, yeah, it's more the perfect image of what you have seen, right? I'm not saying that it's not a mountain in Santa Ana. I would never say that. But it's one image that may be incomplete. It may not be the perfect image. It may not be the ultimate image. Whereas finally when you go and you look in Colorado, it's not perfect, but you do go, oh, that's what a mountain is supposed to be. That's the image. That's more the completion. That's, that would be able to say, oh, that's a true mountain. And you go, yes, that is a true mountain. It's the perfect expression of something. So when Jesus says, I'm the true vine, what he's doing is saying, not only am I the perfect expression, but every other expression is not perfect. They're less. They can't do what I can do. Just earlier in John 8, in the book of John, you'll see that, that Jesus gets into an argument with some of the Jewish people. And one of the things that he says to them is, if you really want to be free, only I can set you free. The truth will set you free. And they say, they're arguing back and they're going, but we're sons of Abraham. Do you see? He's, he's talking source. He's talking vine. Okay? And he's saying, I'm the source if you really want to be free. And they go, Abraham's our source. We've never been enslaved. We are free. And Jesus comes back with, if the son sets you free, then you are free indeed. The perfect true expression of freedom. This is Jesus going, I am the expression of this that you've never seen before. I'm the one that's really going to set you free. And every other expression of freedom is not enough. Mine is. And that's what he's going to do. Now, I'll tell you, God's people always struggle with this. Later, you'll see Paul is in Galatia. And he sets them up and he tells them the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ and to rely on Christ because these are not Jewish people. These are Gentile people. But they've come to be believers in Jesus. And then Paul leaves and then some Judaizers come in. And what they say is, if you want to be free, if you want to be saved, if you want to make your way back to God, then here's what you do. You go through Abraham. You go through the covenant and you go through the law. And Paul actually gets upset that's when you can hear him say, you foolish Galatians, what has happened to you? I gave you the true vine, and you've thrown it away for a lesser vine. 
You've come in to say, it will be in my works. It will be in my pedigree. It will be in the things that I do through Abraham, through the law, that will finally save me. He's going, no, no, no. You've turned loose of what is the actual vine to grab onto something that is a lesser vine. And that's what Jesus is saying with these words. That's why I say it's loaded. That's a loaded word. It's drastic. It's scandalous. What he's saying is I can do what no other vines have ever done. I can accomplish and complete the things that you've desired. This promise that all nations would be blessed through you, Abraham, and through your descendants, I will finish. I will make that happen. This is how it will be done. And it won't be a physical bloodline. It will be another bloodline that will be my blood, Jesus says. New bloodline that begins here. And it will be those that are washed in it, not those who just have it coursing through their veins. For those that have been far away, I will now bring near to the heavenly Father through the blood of Christ. Jesus is saying he will destroy the barrier. He will tear the curtain. He will be the one to make a way. There will be freedom in him, in the Son of God, that has never been experienced before. Those that approached with veiled faces now will have their faces unveiled through Christ, the true vine. You will enter into the Holy of Holies, and you will have communion with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in a way that you have never had before. That's what the true vine will do. And that's what he still does. See, that true vine, when you understand that and you grasp onto that, it shifts your whole identity. Everything changes. Everything changes. When, when I went and, and got this uh, vine dresser and this sommelier to, to walk me through a vine, a vineyard, and I said, walk me through here and show me exactly what these words mean. What does it mean to have somebody go, I'm the vine, you're the branch? What's the difference? Why does this matter? How does a vineyard work? And he showed me through everything here. And by the way, this ought to be real common language for us now. Melissa and I started counting vineyards. We've been going back and forth, you know, from Austin to Kerrville. We've, we've torn up the road. I mean, we just wore it out. And one of the things that happened on one of these trips was we decided to count between Johnson City and Fredericksburg how many vineyards that are right on the road. You know, there's a sign every 10 feet. And I believe it's 20-something miles between maybe Johnson City and Fredericksburg. And there was, we counted over 50 vineyards just right there. There's about one every half mile. They're everywhere. They're becoming a part of this land and a part of this culture. And I'll tell you, that's a good thing in a lot of ways. Because what we want to know is we want to understand what Jesus is saying to us and in the depths of this explanation of who you are. So I got this sommelier and I got this vine dresser. And I go, tell me what this means. And he said, you have to understand that a vineyard is a growing and living organism with these vines. And he said, one of the neat things about vines that you have to understand is we can actually go and check a vine and kind of do the DNA. And you can trace its heritage back over 2,000 years to where it came from. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? You can actually look and go, its origin goes all the way back for 2,000 miles. And what you can find out is that it carries the characteristics. It carries the blood. It carries the heart of the original vine that produced it. 
As a matter of fact, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, one of the things that he mentioned that I had no idea about is that all of the vines in the United States and all of the vineyards all come from just a few different vines in Europe. Just a couple. They all come from just a couple. It spread like that. What happened was somebody came from America and cut off some clippings of a few different vines in, in Europe and brought them over here and planted them and it started to spread and it went everywhere. That's how vineyards work. And he said, you can trace those back to their origin. They carry kind of a DNA. And the disciples would have understood this because that's part of where their hope lied. That's part of where their source was. It's to understand in the first century to go, you know, I'm, I'm, I am a, a person of Israel. I can trace my ancestry back. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin that goes back, that was one of the sons, right? One of the sons of Joseph who was one of the sons of Jacob, who was one of the sons of Isaac, who was one of the sons, I can go back to Abraham. I can show you the bloodline that I have that goes back to the promise and the covenant of Christ. And that was where a lot of their value and that was where a lot of their hope and that was where a lot of their identity was. It was wrapped up in this physical bloodline. And now Jesus says, erase that and start with this. Now, I'm the true vine. It's everybody that's attached to me. We're starting a new DNA. Yours is still going to continue. It's still God's chosen people. This is still the covenant. This doesn't get rid of the covenant that he made with, with the Jews, but instead it fulfills it in every way. This will be the new bloodline, and it meant everything. The alien, the orphan, the widow, the people who came from outside of this, who had never been part of this promise before, now get the whole promise. Because what they get to do is to be attached to the one true vine. It was such a huge thing for the disciples of Jesus and for the people living in that world in the first century. And it is a huge thing for us. Amen. It means everything to us. Because what happens here is Jesus starts making some exclusive claims. I will be the one that will be your true source and your true identity. That's what I will be. I will be the only place that you can find true freedom. I will be the only place that you can find completeness and wholeness. I will be the place that you can find delivery from enslavement. This will be the place where that imperishable joy, that unending bliss, that contentment that you so desperately seek, I'm the only place you're going to be able to find that. I'm it. And it changed everything for us. Nothing else will do this. It's the perfect image of everything we have ever desired. And it also means all other vines are less. They're not true and they're not complete. It can't be your job. It can't be your spouse. It can't be how a boy feels about you or how a girl feels about you. It can't be what your parents told you about who you are. It can't be your biggest mistake and it can't be your biggest moment of glory can't be who you're sexually attracted to. can't be your job or your kids. It can't be the approval or the disapproval of anything in this world. And thank God it's not. Because none of those things will be able to be what Christ can. They promise freedom and what they deliver is enslavement. Every single one of those will enslave you. 
And only through Christ are you free. As a church, it's the same thing. And we need to remember that. It's not our connection to any denomination. It's not our connection to any name. It's not any practice that we do. None of those things can be what Christ is. He's the only true vine. Nothing else is. There's no Bible translation. There's no new song. There's no old song. There's nothing that can define us and make us who we are outside of our connection to the one true vine and in Christ. And we will be talking about that for the next few weeks of what that looks like, what fruit looks like that's attached to the true vine, what it means to be a branch, what it means to uh, let Christ be our vine. We will be talking about every one of those. So what do we pray for then? And this is a big question. Because for us, if this changed everything for the disciples then and it changes everything for us, what do we pray? Well, we pray that the Holy Spirit reveals to us where we may have connections, where we may grasp onto things that aren't the one true vine. So we may be cleansed from those and we can turn loose of those that we only hold on to, we only believe, we only take our action, our heart, our identity, we take captive every thought and every action by the one true vine. We repent for the ways that we have grabbed onto things in this world that are not true, eternal, and the perfect image of the true vine with Christ. And then what we do is we learn to rest. We will rest in belonging and knowing that we're connected to the one thing that will give us ultimate peace. Let's pray for that now. Holy God, we do thank you for the way that you love us. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, the beauty in this description that Jesus has to tell us who he is and who we are and how we'll relate to each other and who you are as our Father. Lord, we thank you that uh, we have one true vine. We thank you for the freedom that comes from that. Lord, we ask you, drive fear out from our hearts that causes us to grab onto other things. Cleanse us of anything that makes us reach out to uh, vines that are lesser, uh, vines that are not true, those things that claim to set us free but instead will slave us. Lord, we do, we repent and we claim the forgiveness that you already give us for grabbing onto things that aren't you. And we ask that you would guide us and give us wisdom and give us courage to turn our backs on those things and instead be identified by the one true vine and what our Jesus has done for us. Let us rest in that. Let us accept the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness that has already been given to us. Let us claim those things as ours because you said so and your ways are true and your promises are true. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.